You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. It is my uh, privilege to introduce to you our preacher this morning. Uh, you may have seen him uh, in other places or in other situations, perhaps sitting on a box drum over here to my right, uh, perhaps singing in the back and waving his hands wildly at different opportunities. But we, uh, we have the, the joy this morning, though, of, of uh, having the Word of God open to us by Ricky Dawson, Jr. this morning. Excited for him and his ministry here. We're grateful that uh, the Lord has gifted him to be able to teach, and so we're excited to be able to welcome him to uh, open God's Word. And so at this time, I would invite you, if you have a Bible, we're going to read the passage of Scripture together this morning. So if you would mind opening the Word that you have with you and standing and joining me as we read the passage of Scripture together, I will read it from the ESV. And if you're looking for it in these white Bibles that are in the seat backs in front of you, see it's on page 649. Actually, it's on page 650. The very top is page 650, reading Romans chapter 2. Verses 17 to 29. Romans 2, beginning with verse 17, says this. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the, in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we we pray now at this time for Ricky that you would give him clear thoughts as he communicates your word to us today. We pray, Jesus, that you would help us to uh, not just hear what is taught, but to apply it in our lives, so that you would receive more glory from our lives. We pray this in your name, dear Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. So glad to be here. Uh, Jeremy, I don't know if he's watching. He is in Washington, D.C. at Arlington National Cemetery. In first service, I called it Arlington National Seminary. Some of us who are in seminary, that might feel accurate. Uh, Before we dive into the text, we miss you, Jeremy, love you. Before we dive into the text here, um, I just want to thank Mill Creek leaders for the way that they guard the preaching of the word. Their their guidance to me uh, has been a source of comfort as I have prepared to preach. 
This is the second sermon of my life. When I preached the first sermon, I laid out some ground rules for you all. I was told that I could only get away with that, the first sermon. Um, So to honor that advice and because I love to submit, here are those ground rules that I'm not really telling you, okay? Um, I may speak too quickly, quickly, sweat profusely. I'm going to fail to gaze deeply into your eyes as I preach. I'm passionate about everything I communicate, even the wrong stuff. You can ask my wife. Um, But I'm not angry just because I'm passionate, maybe. Okay, yeah, I'm not angry. I'm a a little rude. I'm a little little bit of a jerk. I'm working on it. Um, Really, what I'm not telling you is that you should just tell me good job no matter what happens. (laughs) I do believe that preaching God's word is the most essential proclamation on the earth because it's the only way that people can hear the gospel and come to Christ. So as I prepare to do this weighty task this morning, let's petition the Lord for grace. Father, this is your word, not mine. God the Spirit, you are the one who brings rejoicing and conviction, not me. Jesus, you alone save no one else. God, as I prepare to preach your word, I ask you to speak. Soften the hearts of those sitting under the preached word. Do work in us today through this word, great God. Anoint us as ambassadors to go from this place. Take your salvation to the nations, tribes, tongues. Anoint me to preach this word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Over the last few decades, sexual abuse allegations across churches of all stripes have come to light globally. One study stated the unfortunate reality is that in any place where children are unprotected and close to adult populations, these tragic events do occur. Investigations have revealed that the predators responsible for their abuse in churches were pastors, deacons, youth pastors, and other ministry volunteers. An Australian denomination released a report in 2017 revealing that over 4,444 children were abused by clergy over 35 years. The survivors identified over 1,880 male and female predators. One international church has seen abuse scandals on six continents, over 40 countries. Closer to home in 2019, an American Protestant denomination uncovered that more than 380 predators have been charged with misconduct, leaving a trail of more than 700 victims in their wake. Many churches in recent years have taken steps to protect the vulnerable and deal swiftly with the accused. However, before the turn of the century, the lack of action to protect the vulnerable, unfortunately, was a common theme across churches. Predators have been exposed but protected and then moved on essentially unpunished to serve other churches in new locations where they commit the same atrocities. Some denominations were more concerned with shielding the image of the church than protecting the vulnerable. Factions within other denominations fought widespread protective measures in the name of safeguarding local church autonomy. However, these same factions found it very important to protest at large denominational events over women in ministry speaking roles. One survivor stated, 
we are not willing to extend grace to those with differing opinions about women's teaching roles on a Sunday, but we are willing to extend grace to pedophiles as they accept new ministry positions. That speaks volumes about what we value. We live in a culture that is highly sympathetic to these issues as they should be. So when Christians who teach that God is love seemingly belittle these issues, onlooking non-believers repel against God and his people. Of course, the Christian stance on cultural issues will sometimes vary from those whose worldviews are contrary to ours. Still, when it is perceived that Christians cannot unify to implement measures combating the evils of sexual abuse, it seems the credibility of Jesus is being marred by the hypocrisy of his namesake's religion. I'm going to say that again. When we can't get together and get it together, it seems the credibility of Jesus himself is being marred or dishonored by the hypocrisy of the people who call themselves by his name. People who walk around saying, I represent Jesus, but my behavior is trash. Mm -hmm. I represent Jesus, but it looks like caring for abused children isn't a priority. Or let's bring it closer to home because it's not hard to call out the hypocrisy in others concerning something so heinous as child abuse. But what about you and me? See, this sermon can't help those big hypocrites out there because they're not going to hear it. So if it's going to benefit anyone, it's got to be the people in this room or watching online. So let's consider how about we who say, I represent Jesus, while to the world it seems we are so appalled at the sin of others or the political views of others, but it seems to them we are very unconcerned with our own flaws. Or we defend wrong outright when it suits us. Today's text reminds me of Oprah's infamous big car giveaway. You get a car, you get a car, you. But Paul is saying, you're a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite, you're, I'm a hypocrite. In today's text, the Apostle Paul is addressing the issue of religious hypocrisy. Paul is pouncing on the pious. This word, Pious is such a great term for those in this text because the semantic range of the word or the word's broader meaning includes both those who are deeply devoted to their religion, but also those who make a show of their religiousness as a weapon of superiority, hypocrites. For Jewish readers, the apostles' aim in this text was to teach that mere proximity to sacred things, namely God's law, God himself, and circumcision, those sacred things would not shield them from the wrath of God. For Gentile non-believers... Paul's aim was to announce that their historical estrangement from God's law, God himself, and circumcision would no longer bar them from salvation. Our text reveals that the criteria to be a part of God's people have radically changed and been altered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Throw out what you thought you knew. Jesus is a baller. The game has changed. The playing field is, has been leveled for all those who were far off. 
from the sacred things of the Old Testament and those who were near. Spoiler alert, you were far off. You were far off. Jesus came and got you. You are the beneficiary of today's 13 verses here in Romans chapter 2, 17 through 29. Your rescue is here. So let's dig in and understand the text. We will walk through the text in three movements. The first, the pious man's blessings from the sacred. The second, the hypocrite's defilement of the sacred. And finally, the sacred repudiates the pious. Those will be up so you can write them down later. Let's keep moving. Let's go. Point one, the pious man's blessings from the sacred. Let me set up some context here so we know where we are. We find ourselves at a pivotal point in redemptive history. In your hands, which is so cool, is the letter... Paul was writing to the Roman church that he pinned around A.D. 57 from the city of Corinth during his third missionary journey. The church at Rome was primarily comprised of Gentiles with a Jewish minority. Let's hit Paul's. So, kids, you're going to hear the words Jew, Gentile, law, circumcision quite a bit this morning. For those of you who are new to this language, the name Jew originally referred to a person from a specific region. Uh, The term eventually came to refer to the religious group of the covenant people of Israel. Gentile then just means anyone who isn't a pure descendant of the Israelite bloodline. Anyone who isn't a Jew is a Gentile. Most likely that's all of us in this room. When the text mentions the word law, it refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, also known as the Torah. The term is also used more broadly to refer to all 39 books of the Old Testament called the Tanakh. We'll now have an instructional video on circumcision. (laughs) Sorry, that that joke has probably crossed the line, but it's your fault y'all keep hiring immature people. Seriously, circumcision for Jews was an act of cutting away flesh on baby boys as a sign of the religious covenant with God. All right, definitions over, hit play. This letter from Paul to the Romans, here he is expounding on the implications of the decaying old covenant, the covenant that's passing away that God has established with the Jews. In our first verses, Paul outlines the blessings of Jewish proximity to the sacred things of the old covenant. Let's go to the text to read the first two verses, beginning at verse 17, which reads, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Let's pause there. So this section begins with the conjunction, but. Our text is a continuation of comparing and contrasting Jews and Gentiles concerning God's judgment and the law. Being a Jew was a thing to be cherished. It was a thing to be proud of in these verses. Paul lists five blessings associated with being a Jew. Do you see them there in verses 17 and 18? Look with me. The first I see they're called the chosen people. The the text says they rely or rest upon the law. Because of their relationship, they can boast in God. The fourth there, they know God's will. 
Therefore, they can, number five, approve what is excellent. All of these blessings come from their proximity to the sacred. Let's continue in verses 19 and 20. It reads, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So in these two verses, we see that flowing from the blessings they enjoyed that we just covered, they were called to a divine vocation to be all the things Paul lists. The moral standards of the Jewish law influence the Gentile world. So they receive the blessings and then they give the blessings away. In this way, the Gentiles were indebted to the Jews. The phrase at the end of verse 20 is astounding to me. Paul calls the law, hear this, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And this knowledge and absolute truth came from the absolute authority and was able to be expressed and comprehended. Here's the point. God lavished his blessings on the Jews by giving them the embodiment of knowledge and truth the law. God then called the Jews to extend sacred blessings to the nations, the Gentile world. These were genuine blessings for genuine Jews, but Paul is actually setting up his readers to point out their hypocrisy. For the Jews, a good thing became a bad thing because they let it keep them from the best Thing. But as Jeremy says, I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we see Paul's gotcha moment, let's consider some application from these first four verses. I want to pose for us a couple of questions from this text. What do you boast in? As we think about how we live in a community with believers and in a culture of non-believers, in honest reflection, I wonder, does anyone feel the piercing conviction of self-exaltation? Do you feel it? Sometimes our boast of God is really a facade. This is so common. Don't let the thought pass you by. Let me confess. There are moments as I lead worship here week after week that I'm confessing my sin to God as I'm singing and I am receiving his grace and forgiveness as I'm leading you because it's so easy for the human heart to turn inward away from God, either to criticize with condemnation or praise with exaltation. Either is a prideful distraction from the praise of God's glory. You know it's okay to be honest. Why do we get so surprised when sinners sin? What do you boast in? Another question, what shapes your moral compass? Is what God calls excellent what you call excellent? And not by our lip service, we've learned to give the correct answers in church. What one really deems as excellent is seen in how they behave in private. What you run to when no one is watching, what you approve by active or passive participation, the thoughts you allow to live and grow and fester in the chambers of your mind and heart. 
In many cases, our approval of the excellent is not based on God's word, but on our own moral compass shaped by ungodly cultural voices or politics or ethnic background or where we grew up. Believers, some of us do not have enough proximity to God's word to know what he calls excellent. Is that you? It's not my word. It's the word of God. Our actions often show that we fail to believe the word of God is the very embodiment of knowledge and truth. Every dot, every tittle, every stroke of the Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic letter. Belief and practice cannot be separated. So in the fluidity of our culture's truth claims, ask God how you have compromised his truth what is shaping your moral compass? Final question for application from the text. Those of you who are blessed to be in relationship with God, who can you extend sacred blessings to? Think about the person around your life who is desperately lost, broken, hardened. Like the Jews in the text, we are now the people of God, called to extend sacred blessings we've received to another to be a guide to the blind, a light for those in darkness, as our text says, an instructor to the foolish. So right now, I want to obey God's word and extend to anyone here who's not a Christ follower the sweet kindness of God. He is calling you in this very moment. He scheduled you to be here today to hear his gospel. Would you believe and repent of wrong belief about his word? Spirit of God, would you land these things in our hearts and not allow it to just be spoken truth unapplied? The Apostle Paul shifts his focus here from the blessings of the sacred to the defilement of the sacred. So we're going to follow his outline. Let's go to the text to see point two, the hypocrite's defilement of the sacred. Verse 21 reads, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? In these verses, Paul first lodges an accusatory rhetorical question. Notice there are four questions there. One is broader, the first one is broader, and the next three lists specific sins. So those, those, those last three of the four, does this list of sins bring to mind any other list of sins? Maybe the most famous list of sins in human history. These three sins, stealing, Adultery, idolatry, all stem from the Ten Commandments in Exodus. So Paul is not launching an unfounded claim against the Jews. He's confronting them with the very law they claim to be their treasure, that they hold up as their source of peace with God and the moral code they are currently teaching others. Paul implies that they are guilty of hypocrisy and have failed to teach themselves as they have taught others. This text also references the prophet Isaiah chapter 7. It says, will you steal and murder? 
commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. This should make you tremble, people of God. He says, I have been watching. This should make you tremble. Paul clarifies that the Jews rely on and rest upon the sacred law, but they do not obey it. They believe the mere fact of possessing it gives them some sort of security against God's judgment. The last question in verse 22 reads, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? A better rendering of this question is you abhor idols, but do you rob the temple of idols? Paul uses particularly flagrant and disturbing examples, like any good teacher, to illustrate the principle that all the Jews had breached the law that they possessed. At the end of verse 22, Paul accuses some Jews of a sin that's sort of foreign to our cultural context. Paul likely describes robbing pagan temples here. This sort of plundering was linked with idolatry, and it was a common crime in the ancient world. Paul is pointing to hypocrisy. See, the Jews claim to loathe idolatry and rebuff any association with idols, yet they defile themselves by collecting profit from the very idols they despise, or they say they despise. They would have clearly known the text from Deuteronomy 7.25 that instructed them to burn idol statues and not to collect the remaining silver or gold on them. The law deemed this an abomination to the Lord your God. Let's continue in verse 23, which reads, You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here, Paul is showing the readers that their life of inconsistencies was disastrous. They live hypocritical contradictions. What they know and how they live, what they teach and what they practice, their claimed aim and their actual impact. It all was devastating and eternally fatal, not only for them, but also for the observing Gentiles who would mock and discredit the Jewish God, which calls upon themselves, the Gentiles, calling upon themselves God's wrath. In verse 23, we see the second use of the term boasting. This time, Paul says they are boasting in the law. Nowhere in this text does Paul explicitly condemn boasting in God or in the law. It would be an assumption to condemn boasting based on these verses. After Paul reveals their hypocrisy and disobedience, however, any pride the Jews have in the law is exposed as insincere and destructive. The act of boasting here is not the issue. Self-righteousness, disobedience, and hypocrisy that lead to death are the sins. Here's the point. Paul is saying to these pious Jewish hypocrites, you are no better than the pagan Gentiles. 
With this list of sins and the entirety of today's text, Paul shows the equivalence between the sins of the Jews and the Gentiles. Both bring scorn and dishonor to the name of God. Paul is warning the Jews that they have broken the covenant with God because of their hypocrisy and they are not safe. The law does not secure God's favor. It was given to be followed and disobedience to the law deprives it of any advantage. As we head to our final point, a few questions for applications. And I say this gently. Are you a Christian hypocrite? Do you uphold doctrine with your words but not with your living Those of us who are in this building once or multiple times a week, those who serve the church, have been baptized, receive communion, attend or lead Bible studies or conferences, listen to Christian radio or podcasts, who gather with Christian friends or groups, hear the gospel week in and week out, but who have no inward change. Your proximity to those sacred things do not shield you from the wrath of God. External things cannot save. I want to address two specific types of Christian hypocrites before I say something else to all of us. There is the hypocrite who has given themselves over to the kind of flagrant sin Paul mentions here in our text. And you've stopped fighting your sin. My friend, beware. Paul in this text is saying proximity to sacred things does not shield you from the wrath of God. Sin cannot abound. Second, I want to speak to the hypocrite in the same situation, but who is fighting, but feels utterly trapped by sin and circumstances. It feels impossible as if there is little hope, little light. You have been trapped maybe for decades And it's lonely and terrifying. Satan would have you believe there is no escape. The shame eats you alive. Paul has already told us the scripture is the embodiment of truth and of knowledge and truth. So if you want freedom, God's word is how it is available to you. And you do not have to walk alone. To both these Christians, lean into James 5, 16 that says, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. My God still delivers. My God still heals. My God is a chain breaker. Let's not be so enlightened and intellectually high that we forget we have a supernatural father. He does things we cannot define or fathom. And he longs to be gracious to you, Isaiah 30, 18. The scriptures are clear that believers cannot continue to be bound to sin. Beware, your soul is worth the fight. Come quickly and receive his compassion while he is giving you an opportunity to not receive his wrath. Christian or non-believer here who may not believe you're a hypocrite, I know it's hard, I know it's a strong word, nobody wants the label, Just go with me for a second. Let me pose this question to you. Have you ever acknowledged the right thing and did not do it? 
just, just once in your life, have you ever known what was right and just didn't feel like doing it? But then you lifted your hand to point a finger at the failure of another? Well, guess what we call that inconsistency? I'll give you a hint. Anybody want to buy a consonant, starts with the H, ends with the hypocrisy? Okay, some of us here are guilty of the question I pose. Not all of us. Listen, the only hypocrites here are those who are sitting or standing. The only people here who are guilty of any hypocrisy is not, it's not everybody. Just those who are here who are Christian or not. Hear this, believer. Paul gives you the courage that you need to confess your hypocrisy and be healed, as James says. He gives you that courage at the mountain peak of Scripture in Romans 8, where he says, There is therefore now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you hypocritical husband, you hypocritical wife, hypocritical child, hypocritical single, you person trapped in shameful secret sin, Christ has borne your sin and shame and condemnation and humiliation on the cross. You who dishonor God, you who lead others to dishonor God and blaspheme him. You Christian who somehow financially profits from the idolatry of our culture. Believer Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his son, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the gospel of Christ. There is no other way. Your freedom from hypocrisy is here. And it is here we move to our final section, point three. The sacred repudiates the pious. The sacred repudiates or rejects the pious. We end this sermon at the end of Romans 2 where Paul mentions circumcision. Circumcision was the initiation sign of God's covenant with Israel. It was a sacred rite of passage demanded by God to Abraham in Genesis 17. However, it had become a passport to salvation of sorts. A common saying among first century Jews was circumcised men do not descend into Gehenna. Gehenna was another word for hell. Another saying was circumcision will deliver Israel from Gehenna. The ceremony or rite of circumcision had become a substitute for obedience. Paul argues that the value of physical circumcision as a covenant with God has come to an end. He is making a challenge against the last and most substantial argument that the Jews would assert to rebuff his claims. We've seen Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as the power of God unto salvation in chapter 1, verse 16. However, the message was not being accepted by many of Paul's Jewish contemporaries. Their hope for salvation remained in the law and the old covenant. Let's look at the text beginning in verse 25. It reads, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. 
So here at the start of the new covenant in Jesus, Paul demands that those who continue to live under the old covenant must exhibit perfect obedience to the letter of the law. Paul is arguing that any law-breaking at all invalidates one's circumcision. In other words, circumcision might hurt, but not bad enough to replace the wrath of God. Look at verse 26. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? What Paul is proposing here is revolutionary. A Gentile being able to keep the law without circumcision, meaning without being in covenant with God, was impossible. This points to a new way to be in covenant with God, a new set of requirements for God's people defined by something other than the law. Paul was adding to the Old Testament revelation of God and teaching that a new way was replacing the old. Paul, of course, is speaking of the new revelation in Jesus Christ entered to, into by faith. Let's move to verse 27, which reads, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, so the Gentiles, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. In other words, the faithful Gentiles who have no proximity to sacred things will now judge unfaithful Jews whose proximity to sacred things is no longer of any value. Regarding the Gentiles standing in judgment of the Jews, the meaning here is that the Gentiles' obedience will stand as evidence condemning the Jews when God comes to judge all. Verse 28 continues, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outward, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul's revolutionary shift from God's covenant with Moses through the law is clear. Circumcision, the law, Jewish ethnicity no longer have any bearing on the identity of God's people. True Jewishness and true circumcision are not outward matters. A true Jew is one in the secret place of the heart by work of the spirit, not the letter. By calling Gentiles true Jews, Paul here hopes to incite Jews to jealousy, to bring them into the blessings of God's new covenant. The Old Testament promises that the Holy Spirit will be the gift of the new age. He will give the ability to obey the law. The final clause in verse 29 reads, his praise is not from man, but from God. In the context of judgment here in chapter 2, this phrase is most likely speaking of the reward of eternal life that God will gift to his people on judgment day. Here is your rescue. If you are a Gentile, now, salvation is now made available to you through Christ Jesus the Lord. You were far off and now you have been brought near. The question for application is this, by whose merit will you face God on judgment day? 
on that day before God, you can offer your merit for eternal life in one of two ways, either by physical circumcision and perfect adherence to the law or by the circumcision of the heart and a life lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. By whose merit will you face God on judgment day? Christian, don't think this question doesn't apply to you because you're already a Christian. Remember the Jew in our passage with the right religious background, the right book and the proper mission. Religious hypocrisy can be blinding. Matthew 7 pictures for us the judgment God is talking to the religious here in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We must be connected to the only one who is righteous, the one who was able to fulfill the law's requirements, and offer to us his transcript as our own. If Christ has done the work to fulfill the law with a righteousness impossible for you who were far off and those who were near, he surely wants to grant to you the fruit of that work, faith and the Holy Spirit. If you have not turned to him, Receive the circumcision of the heart applied by the Holy Spirit. This comes through faith in Jesus Christ who died to carry our sins and rose so that we might walk in the newness of life. As I conclude, so far Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 in our series has taught us that no one is so good that they do not need to be saved. That was today's text, Romans chapter 2. Chapter 1 taught us no one is so bad that he cannot be saved. No one is so bad that he cannot be saved. That's so hard for me to fathom when I apply it to the predators we talked about earlier. But Paul in this text says the gospel levels the playing field. And that makes sense when I will accept that my heinous sin and hypocrisy seen by the lost encourages them to continue on their path to hell. That sin, my sin that leads others to hell is just as heinous as the pedophiles. God be our help. So we say, thank you, Jesus who saves. We say, thank you, Jesus, who demolished religious leaders or hypocrites of his day for us to see. Thank you, Jesus, who welcomed the lowest of the low, prostitutes, tax collectors, thieves, cowards, because that means I know that you will receive me. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave us your word to reveal to us how dark our hearts are so that we would come running to the one who is our healer. Thank you, Jesus, that you don't look at my hypocrisy and shun me how I shun others. Thank you, Jesus, that your love is not contingent on whether we are rich poor, black, white, male, female, athletic, or paralyzed, gender dysphoric, or attracted to the same sex, intelligent or dense, no matter how leprous or humiliating the sin, you reach out with grace to clean and rescue us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom. He is your strong tower where you can run and be safe. So run, run, run to him. God, now we pray 
we pray back to you, Psalm 51. We plead with you, create in us a clean heart and renew in us a right spirit. Cast us not away from your presence. Remove not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit that we may teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.